We actually called customers preemptively to tell them the new information on the market. We actually held their funds in cash on the rumor of the 3AC news instead of waiting for that to be finalized or anything like that. So we had their cash ahead of time. We called all of the customers to tell them exactly the dynamic of the situation. And we didn't lose a penny of customer funds and don't intend to, obviously. Happy Tuesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Packy McCormick, and Not Boring Founders is a podcast where we talk to the people who are building the future. Today, we have a second time guest on the podcast, CEO and co-founder of Meow, Brandon Arvanagi. We had Brandon on for a second time for a couple of reasons. First, because Meow just announced a Series A, which is an impressive feat in a market like this. And second, because Meow operates in a part of the crypto world that's come under fire recently. Meow lets companies earn up to 4% potential yields on their corporate treasuries. It does that by offering a range of products, including lending the money out to crypto lending desks. Now, if you've heard the news recently about companies like Celsius and Voyager, they also lend out deposits in exchange for yield. But there's a few key differences between Meow and those companies. First, those companies work with retail investors, whereas Meow works only with accredited companies. And second, while those companies push further and further out the risk curve in order to generate higher yields and earn higher profits, Meow stayed committed to the compliance first strategy that Brandon talked about the last time that he was on the podcast. There were many times over the course of the crypto bull market when investors and depositors alike asked Meow to push out the risk curve, to put their money into things like Anchor to get 20% yields. And Meow said, no, they looked at the math and the math didn't work. And then when markets started to crumble, Meow made a proactive and brave choice in order to protect customers' funds, which Brandon's going to talk about today. As an investor and somebody who's been very close to the company, I've been continually impressed with Brandon, his co-founder Bryce, and the rest of their team and their resolve to do whatever it takes to make sure that their customers' money stays safe, even in the face of extreme temptation that others fell prey to. This conversation with Brandon is a behind-the-scenes look into the crypto lending market as it melted down, what it was like on the field, and how Meow responded. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brandon Arvanagi, the co-founder and CEO of Meow. The rule here is that if you have a phenomenal markup and the company's doing well, you get to come back on the podcast. I guess the first place to start is just to remind people what Meow does. You are in a particularly interesting business given the current market environment. Yeah, it's been a wild month. We just closed our Series A. We provide a compliant bridge from corporate treasuries to crypto market yield sources. So that's DeFi protocols, that's institutional lending desks, that's market makers in dollars. So they never have to deal with a wallet. Interesting time to be in crypto lending. We're going to get there. I want to get your thoughts because you know, there's a lot of people on Twitter talking about all of these meltdowns and very, very few who are actually kind of in the middle of what's going on right. and dealing with some of the parties involved. First, though, I think we should probably do this sequentially. So you and I talked a bunch as you were going out to raise the market just kind of kept getting worse and worse and worse. But the traction on your end kept getting better and better and better. So what was it like raising and just paint the picture? When was it? What was the process like? And then what was the result? Yeah, so I think we started raising mid to late April and the market for VC was bad. I think Ukraine had already started the Ukrainian war and it got worse seemingly every single day. The market was getting worse and worse. 
And what became very clear to us immediately was that this is not 2021. So in 2021, you could, you know, crap in a box, pardon my language, call it Web3 and you get funded. But it became very clear there was no narrative pitching going on in the VC markets anymore. It was all about revenue and metrics. And that's really what protected us and what allowed us to still get, you know, multiple competing term sheets was the fact that we had real revenue, real fundamentals. We were on pace to be profitable. But yeah, the market continued to get worse, uh, but our, our process was still quick. It took us about a week and a half to get term sheets. So. Yeah, I remember it being very fast and being surprised because looking around, you know, there were a lot of companies who already at that time, term sheets were like maybe starting to get pulled. Certainly to your point, companies that were trying to raise on narrative, that kind of disappeared overnight. Mm-hmm. And you came in and you're like, I want to get this done in a week. And I was like, I don't know. That <laughs> seems like crazy in a market like this. And then you ended up pretty much pulling it off. What was the Series A? Who led? What can you tell us? Yeah, so we're very grateful. Tiger led. They were super professional from the start. Their diligence is intense. I mean, they call people 10 years in your past. Um, but yeah, great partner there. Tiger led. QED, big part of this as well. Very excited to be working with them, actually. Working very closely. And, and they're excited to get, dig deeper into crypto. And FTX is a, is a part of this as well. We have a partnership with them, which I'm very excited to, to talk about soon. Yeah, you couldn't really ask for a better trio of investors, given what you're trying to do. I mean, you know, Frank just went on Cartoon Avatars at, at QED. And he's like right. clearly going deep down the rabbit hole, but a partner like that is really interesting because just like you, they kind of have their, their foot in both fintech and now in, in crypto. And so I was really psyched to see them come around the table. Cause I think for a product like this, having both sides of the, the coin there, and then obviously FTX longtime sponsor of the pod and, and just continuing to, to kill it in this, in this market environment and Tiger, you know, have great things to say about and have heard similar things on their diligence process. So when you came in, I, I was incredibly pumped and your timing could not have been really much better. So you sign the term sheet, then what happens? We sign the term sheet. We go through kind of the enhanced diligence after the fact. That's where our lawyers talk to, you know, the Tiger Council and everyone. This is typically like a month long process. During this period is when UST blew up. And so that was gigantic news in the crypto space. This is something we've been calling for quite some time since we started in April of last year. We had like emails, timestamps proving this. Believe it or not, Becky, we had investors, prospective investors, really reputable people on paper that said, why are you bothering with this institutional over-collateralized lending? Why don't you just put the funds in UST, put it in anchor? And it took us three pages into the white paper when we read it to say, no, this is, this is not a good idea. <laughs> this is not a sustainable thing. So, yeah. so for context, can you explain what ET and Luna and Anchor, like how that whole ecosystem worked and then what you saw in the white paper that scared you. Yeah. So UST was a quote unquote decentralized stable coin, which it was supposed to keep a peg to the dollar, to the US dollar. So one UST was supposed to be equal to one US dollar. But unlike the Gemini dollar or USDC, for example, there's not actually a dollar sitting in a bank account. It's not pegged actually to one dollar or a US treasury. What they did was they basically printed Luna to serve as how they maintain the peg. Luna was another cryptocurrency. The problem with that is that it's a very volatile currency itself. So that dynamic, having something that's supposed to maintain a peg with a very volatile asset, quote unquote, backing it, is a recipe for disaster. So when we learned that dynamic, we said this is a terrible idea. Despite that, it was very attractive to not knowledgeable people, retail investors, unfortunately, because if you took the UST and you put it inside of the anchor protocol, it would pay you nominally 20% yields in UST. That's the key part. It was in UST. 
So you would be getting 20% on your UST, but the assumption that the UST is always going to be $1 is where a lot of people got in trouble, especially the people who don't understand crypto enough. And they started yield companies based on UST. I could speak about that like for an hour, but yeah, that, that was the issue. Yeah, it was wild to me that it was both sophisticated people, like three hours capital, or, you know, one of the biggest funds in the space seemingly had an unlimited ability to borrow money from everybody, which has taken a lot of other companies out. And we can talk about that as well. And then, you know, you hear the, the tragedies of, you know, people putting their life savings in because 20% seems like the greatest gift in the world for something that if not advertised as riskless was at least like kind of pushed as a little bit riskless. Yep. So it was wild. It swept a lot of people, smart, dumb, sophisticated, unsophisticated, crypto native, non-crypto native. It caught a lot of people up. And I can understand from your perspective that I'm sure you have customers coming to you and saying, hey, can we get some of that 20% instead of 4%? Yeah, we never entertained that. I mean, the closest we considered was letting them put their existing UST holdings like visibly on our dashboard. But we never entertained that. The thing about like the smartness of people, it's unfortunate because the people who created yield apps around the UST asset, I call them just smart enough to lose everyone's money. So these are people who don't understand crypto that well. They're people who are not on the ground floor of a regulated crypto company. And they see this thing that pays 20% on paper. And they're used to traditional banks that pay 0.1%. And so they have this bright idea that says, hey, I'm new to crypto. I'm here to save it. I'm going to bring crypto to the masses. It's been all these nerds this, thus far. They don't know how to make a simple UI. Let's get the 20%. Let's bring crypto to the masses and give it to these users. So what they did, these retail yield apps, is they would have a dollar-based liability to their users, but they would take their cash and put it into EST, which is not a dollar, it's UST. And they put it into the anchor protocol. So when that peg blew up on the UST side, all these customers expecting to have their principal back actually just had a lot of UST, which was worth nothing. So that was the situation there. It's, it's very sad, honestly. And somehow, despite that, you still closed. Everybody who committed to staying in stayed in. So when did you actually end up closing? And then what happened in the market after that? Yeah, so the closing still happened a month later. I mean, all the investors we had, they understood that we were never facing, we never put customer funds in the USD. The thing about Meow, first of all, we only quick face accredited investors, which is very different than facing retail. And number two, investors actually have to self-select where they deposit their funds, where they want the yield source to go. Now, if you go to a different website, for example, you would just see interest account, right? A different crypto-powered interest account. You would send the money, you'd have no idea what they're doing, and you just see an interest rate that you get. You actually have to self-select the yield source on Meow. So you know exactly where your funds are going. You can pick a DeFi protocol by name. You can pick an institutional lending desk by name. You can pick an over-collateralized version of that lending desk by name. So when USC happened, yeah, I got a lot of questions from people who didn't understand you know, you know, are you affected? Like, no, we never listed Anchor, obviously. I mean, we do some curation of our options. It's intuitive to us, obviously, but yeah, it closed the end of May and yeah, the investors have been great. So. It's funny because when you came on the podcast for the first time and, and throughout all our conversations, you're talking about building kind of a compliance first crypto company and like doing things the right way. And it was appealing to me in particular because, you know, I had seen that BlockFi got in trouble for, for offering yield products to retail investors and all that, but it's hard to like really grok what that means and have that be your kind of like marketing angle until the world blows up and something like this happens. So can you talk a little bit more just about what being compliance first means and, and what else there is kind of attached to that? It's very difficult to face retail currently in the regulatory environment for these high yield accounts. 
Now, places like BlockFi, when they started, what was it, 2014, 2015, it made perfect sense for them to go after the retail customer base because the market for accredited investors or corporates did not exist. Retail is the early adopter to everything. But what we saw was there's finally real institutional demand for these potentially higher yields, given the inflationary environment, given that COVID flipped everything on its head, which is kind of what the SEC wants to see in the first place is going after accredited investors. Now, I don't want to speak to the ethos of crypto versus the SEC. I don't want to get into that subject as much. But what I will say is that retail users tend to be the least informed. And that's why they can be taken advantage of either by malicious people or by people who are just smart enough to lose everyone's money that we're just putting people's funds in, into, into UST. But yeah, going after people who are wealthy enough that can understand the risks, et cetera, that's, that's a big differentiator for us here. So after you closed, there's this like domino effect that started happening in the market where a bunch of centralized finance or CFI lenders, as, as they're called, just started kind of one after one after one going out of business. What happened? I know you've given like hints to it so far, but like what specifically happened? So Celsius, I think, was the first to pause withdrawals, and we never listed them as an option on the Meow site because we were frankly sketched out by some of the behaviors that we saw publicly, or at least the rumors. So I think they got caught in the BadgerDAO hack. I believe they were rehypothecating Bitcoin collateral that they received as well. So they would receive collateral in Bitcoin and then use it for some other speculative reason as opposed to holding it. Now, this is all secondhand conjecture. I can't speak definitively, just to be clear. And I believe they were also unbanked by Prime Trust. There was a lot of data that went into us, not even remotely coming close to listing them. That news to us was kind of a duck. It was not really news when they paused withdrawals because we knew that the institutional lending desk that we were partnering with, the market makers, et cetera, no one was lending to Celsius in the back end to, to get their yields. And they weren't putting their funds directly into Anchor either. So that itself was really nothing. There was a day when Bitcoin's price started tanking. I don't know if you remember this. It was just candle after candle after candle. It seemed to be no bid. Yep. And yeah, things just didn't quite add up because the only news at the time was pretty much the Celsius news. That's when rumors of the 3AC insolvency started coming. And they were just rumors at the time. But that was news. I mean, that was a giant fund. And implicitly, you, you'd have to know that a lot of these places, a lot of these lending desks would be lending to them. Probably not over collateralized in 100% of the cases. So that was news indeed. And as we saw that those candles that I was describing was actually them getting liquidated. It was very likely them getting liquidated all the way down. Some of the fraudulent behavior that they've done is coming to light now. So that was a different story. That was actually a very material thing to happen to the crypto lending market. And how they were like $18 billion under management at yeah. their peak or something like that. And then yeah. I, I don't know if you saw the screenshots the other day of Kyle, one of the, the leads of the fund saying, like, yeah. oh yeah, 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 we're good for it. We have like $2.3 billion or yeah. something. And that was like the attestation that their counterparties were, I guess, willing to or forced to take from them, but like just a spectacular blow right. So who else did they touch? So it seems like a lot of the lending desks, and I can't speak by name, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of them had loaned to them in some capacity. So that's why you see like pretty much everyone having taken losses on paper. Now, everyone also has an equity cushion, right? So to cover these losses, they themselves have an equity cushion. The question is, how big is that cushion? Was it enough to backstop this in the first place? Did that firm need a buyout, for example? Did that lending desk need a buyout? And could they withstand another existential lockdown after this? Like, do they have remaining equity cushion? So yeah, it, it's a big problem. I mean, what's coming out more and more, it, it seems to suggest some of the 3AC behavior was indeed fraudulent, which is concerning. But the truth is like everyone got caught overextending a little bit and uh, the equity kickers had to come in. 
they had to have a backstop come in and protect them. So what's going on at Meow at this point to date? Like, even if you're dealing with the safest counterparties, and it seems as if you have been, like there has to be a bit of a, just like an educational issue with customers or a communication issue. How do you separate yourselves from the other people? And then what have you decided to do to, to manage through it? Yeah. So when we would talk about the Meow offerings in 2021, we would talk about a hypothetical situation. We couldn't have predicted this specifically, but we spoke hypothetically about situations where a Bitcoin crash of 50% in a day, there would be a backstop uh, for this, for example. And that happened in COVID. Like in March, 2020, there was an intraday swing of Bitcoin's price in spot markets, 40, 50%. And all the institutional lending desks that were out there remained fully solvent. So we talked about that. Now, when this happened, we pretty much got to the point where everything we had touted to potential customers was tested. So like the backstops kicked in. So there was no like additional resilient layer. We were kind of in uncharted territory at that. So what we said would happen, would happen. The backstops kicked in. And at that point, we knew there was more information to get before we could continue to say, let's do unsecured lending to X or let's, you can go into this other unsecured offering. So collateral became king. Collateralized offerings are very, very popular. A lot of our customers chose to move into them. And we actually called customers preemptively to tell them the new information on the market. We actually held their funds in cash on the rumor of the 3AC news instead of waiting for that to be finalized or anything like that. So we had their cash ahead of time. We called all of the customers to tell them exactly the dynamic of the situation. And we didn't lose a penny of customer funds and don't intend to, obviously. Yeah, it's an incredible. As a both an investor and a customer, I was very happy to, to see that. I mean, it has to be a hard decision though, right? Like you're growing quickly. You have money that's making money both for your customers and for Meow sitting out there that you're pulling back in. Like what were the internal conversations like at Meow and deciding to do that? And what were conversations with investors like? It was not a hard decision because it was the only ethical decision to do. We, we felt like the information scenario changed. So yeah, and investors were super supportive of this. I mean, they thought it was the best thing. We want to be around for a hundred years. The goodwill that we bought with our customers, I mean, the customers trust us infinitely more because we're not trying to like keep them in protocols. We're calling them ahead of time and saying, we have your funds in cash. Would you like it now? Would you like to move to an offer collateralized offer? So I, I think this is a long-term play. We really, like, this is going to be, like, we already have like insane demand coming back in because of that. So it's already kind of paying off for us and just, you know, doing the right thing by customers is always the right move. So that's that's been good to see. Yeah. So what's the state of Meow then today? Like when are people reinvesting? Are they going into over collateralized? Yeah. Like what's the product suite look like? And what are the next six months look like? Yeah. So there's some information requests we put out to like all of our institutional lending partners. We're waiting for information from them to be able to relate confidently to our customers. We put everyone's funds into cash from some of these offerings on the rumors of the three AC things, just to be clear. Like we were the first to to do that. So we always are conservative on that front. What we've heard since then, as the markets have cooled down, we haven't seen any more shoes dropping. It seems like all the shoes have dropped at this point and we're massively deleveraged compared to before. There's a lot of demand as usual. Like I, I think we could turn on the switch right now and go back to the same offerings if we wanted to and, and have you know 1.5x the AUM we had before. But right now we're still advising these customers to, to hold off or choose one of the over collateralized offerings that we offer because collateral is king right now until you can get a good picture of the financial health, as opposed to just what you see on Twitter of some of these lending, lending partners, for example. Can you describe the over-collateralized product for people who are less familiar? What does that mean? Sure. So if you were to provide your funds to Meow and we gave it to a crypto hedge fund or something like that, we would require them to give us 1.5x what we gave them in Bitcoin. 
So they would give us 1.5 X what we provided them in Bitcoin. We would hold that. We actually have more value than what we've given them. And yet they pay us an interest rate for that. So if that value of that Bitcoin, which meow custodies, by the way, ever drops below 1.25 X, we issue what's called a margin call. And we say, come give us more Bitcoin or else we're going to sell this Bitcoin and recover the principle uh, of everything. So they have to respond within you know 24 hours or else we're able to sell it. That system, that custodying the Bitcoin, that margin calling, that automation, that 24-7 monitoring, that's something we handle. We act as kind of an insurance wrapper. And there's much, much, much less credit risk, obviously, because it's I've got something of theirs, which is more valuable than what, I, what I've provided. Uh, so that's why I say collateral is king, because it provides effectively an insurance wrapper around this. And the rates can still be super attractive at that. It could be like 4% potentially against 5%. A dumb question yeah. that I think is is like pretty basic to understanding just like all of everything that's been going on in the markets is why in the world would a hedge fund ever give you 150% of the value of their loan in order to get cash on the other side? Like, what are they doing with that? They're willing to pay you 5% and give you 150% of the amount of Bitcoin. The short answer is they're, they're long both the assets. So they, they like having Bitcoin. They think it's going to get more valuable and they also want to borrow dollars to directionally maybe make another bet on Bitcoin getting longer, getting even more valuable. So they don't want to sell the Bitcoin to do something. They want to hold it and they want to get more money to, to speculate on it in that direction. Now, this is great when we have the, when we have more collateral than what they've, what we've given them. That's great. It's very low risk from that perspective. It makes sense. And then there's some, yeah, there's some trades. And I think probably what 3AC was trying to do that are just, you need massive amounts of cash to just take little amounts on kind of just inefficiencies that you see in the market. And so sure, hold on to my Bitcoin and I'll yep. go out and trade with the cash. Exactly right too. Yeah. And, and you know, most of the, the world runs on unsecured, unsecured. So just based on credit scores, based on like risk assessments, et cetera. So that's kind of the problem. I and mean, if you look at 3AC and 3AC says, hey, we have 10 billion on our balance sheet, then giving them a loan for like a billion makes sense on paper, right? That's, that's kind of one of the things that got people tripped up here. The problem is, were they behaving fraudulent? Was there enough data to actually prove they had the balance sheet? Were they pledging the same collateral to like 10 different people without actually providing it to them? And if it wasn't a cryptocurrency, for example. So that's uh, one of the issues that, that came to light here. And yeah, a lot of people's equity cushions came in to, to save the day or their implicit backstops. And we chose those partners, ultimately the ones who had that in place. Thank God. I, it's cool to see you doing so well through this and making all the right decisions because like this is the nightmare scenario right that there's a crypto blow up and that interest rates are are rising so how do customers think about if yields go up another two percent on treasuries like how are they thinking about how to make those allocation decisions and what happens to crypto yields when treasury yields go up also so let's say like a high yield savings account in like the traditional like cash world is the quote-unquote risk-free rate then there has to be a premium assigned to even the over collateralized offerings that we have to make it worthwhile for anyone to lend to a crypto hedge fund, for example. And so they would have to pay higher rates if they ever want to get capital because people would say, well, I can just put it into a high yield savings account that pays 4%. Why would I give it to this crypto hedge fund that pays 4%? So I always see some kind of premium there until the JP Morgans of the world, the Goldman Sachs of the world start underwriting the space. Now with T-bills, for example, T-bills have price, there's price risk to bonds and things like that. So it's not quite a one-to-one, -one, but yeah, there's going to be a premium from the risk-free quote-unquote rate and the higher yield stuff in the crypto markets. Got it. That makes sense. So for the hedge funds to be able to borrow 
they just need to offer more because they have a bunch of sophisticated lenders who are like, no, 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 I'll stick my cash in this other thing that I can more safely generate yield on. What a wild world that you, that you live in. So what's the shakeout of all of this going to be is, is CFI dead? Is crypto lending dead? Like where does all of this go from here? Yeah, people are already looking to get back into the markets and we're we're very pleased to see them want to go through us because they know there is an implicit added layer of security through us because we're watching these markets 24-7 like a hog and we will pull the funds into cash like the second there's even a whiff of a rumor. So that's been very pleasing to see. Now we're still advising people we want to wait a little bit to get more data for some of our offerings. We're still directing them to the over-collateralized stuff if they're interested at all in those. So that's been great. Now DeFi... I don't ever want to hear someone say there's no real world use case for DeFi because the, the over collateralized DeFi protocols were the ones that got paid back before anyone else in the galaxy. You know, you could see on chain places like Celsius paying back these dumb protocols that there's no cronyism, there's no favoritism, there's no waiting for bankruptcy or procedures. It's I will liquidate you because I don't have a brain. I'm just a program running on the blockchain if you don't give me your capital. So that works. It runs like a clock, but the over collateralized ones. Maybe we'll get to a world where unsecured lending can take place on chain. I think we're a long way away from that, from it being super you know, seamless and successful. But yeah, DeFi has got a very strong future and, and CFI will be back as soon as like the financials are prepared basically from a lot of these, these times. I, I want to dig a little bit more into, into this notion of unsecured DeFi. Yeah. What do you think it takes to get to that world? So here's the problem. If I want to lend unsecured to a random Ethereum address, for example, first of all, who is that person? How do I know who they are? No concept of identity on the chain. So the first thing is I need to know it's a well-known address by Alameda or you know, Wintermute or Amber or something like that. Number one. Number two, is there a credit score associated with this? There's no concept of credit scores in the crypto world either. Now, there have been startups that have been promising decentralized credit scores since like 2016, 2015, identity on chain, 2015, 2016. It's just a very hard thing. And I, I think it's, it's not happening anytime soon. So that's why over collateralized works so well because it's programmatic. I don't need to necessarily know who the person is on the other end. If they're giving me more collateral and ETH, you know, like the compound protocol, for example, then I actually loan out to them. That's seamless. There's no, that's trustless in itself. So for unsecured lending to be, you know, thriving on chain, you need to know who you're lending to. You need some concept of identity. You need some concept of credit scoring and you need some concept of recourse. So Ideally, they're in the same locality as you. They're in the same jurisdiction as you. Ideally, they're both in the United States, for example, if you're lending to a U.S. person. So you can go after them with the court if they don't pay. But you have to know who they are first. You have to have a contract with them first. I don't even know how you get a loan agreement on chain. Now, there's the world of CDFI, which kind of mixes both of these. It's it's loan agreements that are done off-chain, which like in pen and paper, as you would normally, but the mechanism to send and receive the funds is done on-chain. That's slightly more efficient than the legacy system, but it's effectively CFI, just a different way to send the funds back and forth. That one I'm actually super excited about. Wrote a piece on on Circle today, and I said something like the revolution won't be total to be effective or something along those lines. We're like, yeah, if you can make the middle part of that transaction and the payments and the stuff that should be automated anyway, automatic and faster and cheaper, you can take out 10 bips, 20 bips from like, huge numbers of transactions, which is really meaningful, hopefully speeds up the flow of money and all, all of those sorts of things. So I actually, I actually didn't even know the, the term CD5, but yeah, I'm, I'm long CD5. I am too. That's a, that's a great point. I mean, what is the internet if not a efficiency improvement over sending faxes back and forth, for example? This is an efficiency improvement that has unlimited potential. 
when you, when you have that level of increased liquidity, increased flows, you're exactly right. And transparency, by the way. So you're exactly right. I'm, I'm bullish on that too. Totally. So where does Meow, you know, looking out over the next few years, the next decade, like where do you play in all of this? Like how much do you think will end up coming into Meow? Will CDFI stuff start happening on Meow? Are there other types of things that you're thinking of incorporating? What does Meow look like in 10 years? Yeah. I mean, we already have more demand than we ever have, like our, our AUM number. So that's great. Right now, we just want to focus on becoming the most trusted name. And I think we've, we've gotten there so far, which I'm very proud of. Growing our AUM, growing our offerings, having high yield cash accounts as well, unaffiliated with crypto, and basically becoming Web3 Brex is what we're going for. So you have the options to earn yield from crypto sources. You have traditional high yield accounts and you have buy sell, which is live on our site and the ability to send USDC live. So that's the entire feature suite that we have currently on meow.co. And we want to become the most trusted name in crypto, basically. And that's, that's very much the plan. I love it. Brandon, incredible work navigating through this. It's been very fun to watch, even though the whole kind of situation hasn't been that much fun. It's been fun watching you navigate this. Thanks for coming on again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Pat. You had fun.